Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 124. My guest today is Mark Lee. He is Emeritus Professor of Intelligence Systems in the Department of Computer Science at Aberystwyth University in Wales, and his research centers on AI in robotics. He has won over £10 million of research funding from UK government agencies, published over 200 papers, and his most recent work is in the new field of developmental robotics which is creating computational models of infant development for novel robot learning techniques. His book, How to Grow a Robot, Developing Human-Friendly Social AI, was published by MIT Press in 2020 and talks about his experience with the iCub humanoid robot, which he has trained to learn from its experiences as he took its development from newborn helplessness to ability levels equal to a nine-month-old. Let's get to the interview with Mark Lee. Mark Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. So robots capture the imagination so much. How did you get into this field? Were you doing something else before robots? What was the trigger? Where did you come from that led you into this? Show us through that path, because it can be interesting to people who are in a similar stage of their careers who might be inspired to go in the same direction. Well... I was trained as an engineer and educated in college in engineering, but I was always interested in the relationship between machines and the human body. So I worked on things like speech processing and color vision in my college days. And then I got a job teaching computer science and I did a PhD with a psychology department about human learning. So this was in the 1970s and I've really been interested in that ever since. Unfortunately, the funding situation went through various AI winters, and you couldn't get funding for such things as modelling the human mind. So I worked quite a bit in industrial robotics in the 80s. But in the new century, funding came back into that area. And we had a number of projects then on uh, building robot systems that could imitate some infant learning problems. Robots you know, capture our imagination so much because we often we're driven to think when we hear robot that it's something with a body, a head, two legs, two arms. And if we think about general purpose robots, if there is such a thing, is there something optimal about that form factor? Or do you not feel constrained in any way by what humans have evolved to? I don't know. That's sort of a difficult question. I mean, there are other animals like octopus who are, some people have studied them in great depth and think they may be as intelligent as humans, but they'd be a completely alien form of intelligence. It may be just that we've followed a particular evolutionary path. I mean, all of our nearest relatives in the great apes, for example, share 98% of our DNA. So in a way, we perhaps didn't have a choice. Evolution in the niche that we found ourselves in environmentally made walking and our body structure optimum for that, perhaps. 
Well, then perhaps before we go too much further, you could define robot for us. Well, that's quite difficult. It depends whether you're talking about autonomous agents. I like them to be autonomous, that is self-contained and have their own motivations and driving force. So I wouldn't really consider drones and things like that to be robots because they usually have human supervisors, although a lot of people call them that. So it's some physical device, some machine that can determine to some extent its own actions. It may have different physical forms, but it has to perceive the environment. So it needs sensors and it has to be able to act on its environment and do things. So a computer isn't a robot, but clearly a robot needs a computer as as a brain of some kind. If we encapsulate that distinction between the computer and robot, is embodiment a good word to do that with? Yes, I think it is. And I think it becomes increasingly important that intelligence is embodied if we really want it to do human-like intelligence, human-like learning, and get over some of the problems we've got with AI. So perhaps you could tell us what embodiment means to you in this respect, since it's so pivotal to the development of robots. Yes. I mean, robotics is quite hard work because you have to set up a lab with a lot of hardware and there's costs and staff involved in that, which you don't get with AI. You just need software programmers. But the problem is that when you look at AI systems, which are very good, and I mean, they've amazing advances in recent years, but they're very task-centered on a particular job. And if you want to go along the path towards human learning and more general abilities, then the meaning of things in the world has to be understood. And the problem with current AI is it doesn't really understand what it's doing. It just does certain tasks very well. So things like the big language processes that are on the scene at the moment, with billions of parameters in them, can translate very well. They can complete stories and answer questions. But they don't really know what the meanings of those questions and those words are. And if you look at it in more detail, then you see that you do need a body in order to operate in the world and do things to the world that you can see with your perceptions, what the results of those actions are. And you need a much more integrated approach. Hmm. For example, I looked at the list of research topics on the webpage of Meta recently, and they say, we do research in these different areas. So they say computer vision, conversational AI, natural language processing, theory, speech and audio. Well, they're all different features that they work on, and they probably try and combine them. But really, you need to integrate them right from the beginning. Humans don't learn one of those in isolation and then learn the next one. It's a completely integrated system. And each bit of the system helps other parts to learn at the same time. Is it fair to say then that for robots, they locate meaning in the real world? Yeah, in theory. I mean, we're getting into theoretical ground because I don't think we've got any robots that do that yet. Yes, and that means that the robot, to some extent, has to have a subjective view on the world. It has to be able to say, I am seeing this from this perspective, and now I'm seeing it from that perspective, and understand that it has got a self, and that this self is acting on the world to understand its own agency. It's fascinating how rapidly we get into philosophical territory. I mean, we're talking about self, we're talking about meaning. Pretty soon, we're probably going to be on to consciousness. And has that always been a feature of robotics or is it relatively recently that it seems to have had this crossover into these deep philosophical questions? 
I think those questions have always been there. And even before AI, people were talking about it and Alan Turing and people like that. But I think the problem with AI these days is that people don't think enough about how humans do things. People write software with very mathematical techniques that don't bear any resemblance to the way we think. And in the early days, they did. I mean, in the early days, there were movements called cybernetics, where they tried to model things that people do. And that thread, I think, might be coming back. But we certainly need more of it because people don't think, how would a human do this problem? Hmm. And can we copy that human learning in some way and get better results? You mentioned cybernetics there, which was a brainchild of, or the term originated by Norbert Wiener. And I always found it hard to get at the definition of that. It seemed to be a bit abstruse. But if that's something we're going to be returning to, maybe we should understand it better. Is there an encapsulation of cybernetics that's useful that you can give us? Well, there are various definitions, but I think, I mean, to me, it simply means trying to model human behavior in different ways. So they built little robots that could move around, Grey Walters tortoises that could wander about. There was actually a club called the Ratio Club in London with Grey Walter and Rosh Aspie and lots of the early people, including Alan Turing, attended it, and biologists as well. So they had this integrated view then, and that seems to be missing at the moment. It would be nice if we could get that back so that we have psychologists working closely with AI developers. Wow, thank you. And that's very interesting, actually, because I'm reading a lot about Turing at the moment in preparation for another guest. And I hadn't come across that thing about the Ratio Club. And you were saying they were exploring this aspect of how do humans think? Is that right? How do we reproduce that? Well, they were a group of people in London that used to meet, I think it was weekly, and they were interested in Norbert Viner's book and those ideas, and they each presented different bits of their work uh, different weeks and so on and discussed it. Mm. It's written up in a book called The History of the Mechanism of Mind or something like that. I can tell you the details of that. It's a very good book about it. Thank you. I want to move on to, the, speaking of books, your book, How to Grow a Robot. And of course, one word sticks out there because it's not called How to Make a Robot, How to Build a Robot, How to Create a Robot. Why is it How to Grow a Robot? Because we've done some experiments here trying to duplicate the growth process of the human infant. And this is the way in which we learn about the world and we attach meaning to the various symbols and systems that we come up against. So if you think about the animal world, an egg hatches and a precocial animal like a bird comes out and walks away. We're altricial animals, which means that we need a long period of care the longest of all the mammals, in fact. And during that period of care, we're having this extended experience. I mean, we're completely helpless at birth, and most of our sensory systems don't work very well, and we can't control our actions. And eventually, within a year, I mean, the amount of learning in that year is amazing. And um, the psychologists have studied this, child's development, and there's a great deal of data on it. So the idea is to use that data and say, well, what could be going on there? What algorithms could we get out of that to make a robot learn these things with it and not program it? So the idea is that we give the robot basic abilities so that it can record or put together experiences that it has and build on those and get more skilled, and, but not to program it to do particular things. And of course, it needs a drive to do that. So intrinsic motivation is the word used in the field 
And this normally means some sort of curiosity or novelty aspect. So any new experience that's novel, any new item seen will be exciting to the device in a mathematical sense. It raises its interest mm. level and it will tend to play with that. And in play is a very fundamental aspect of childhood, probably more important than school, really. Children that are denied play don't develop properly. And during play, we take these primitive skills we've got and apply them in different situations and see the variation and the scope and the possibilities and discover new skills and new events that can come out of that. Wow, you've given me a lot to ask about there. And one of the first things you made me think of was that we had earlier on the show psychologist Alison Gopnik from Berkeley who talked to us about how babies think and fascinating things there and the crossover between that and AI. So I would refer our listeners to what she was saying because that's very on point here. And then when you're talking about the need for curiosity, so I'm wondering how practically do you do that with a robot? Is that reinforcement learning or not? What do you do to make a robot curious? Uh, not really. There's quite a bit of dissatisfaction with reinforcement learning at the moment. It's more a Hebbian style of learning whereby things that occur together, one of the biologists called it suspicious coincidences. If you see two events happening together, you tend to associate them. And Hebbian learning says that the neurons that fire together wire together so that if it happens enough, then you store it as an interesting event. If it doesn't happen or if later on it's not repeatable, then it becomes less interesting. Mm. And we found a, quite simple mechanisms like that are enough to learn about the control of the sensory motor system and enable a robot to learn how to map out its local space and control it for reaching to objects and manipulating objects and things like that. How important in the development of a robot that could understand the world is its ability to manipulate that world? If I took away everything about a robot that could move and it can only sense passively, can it do its job? Can it reach the goals that you would like? Or is that not going to work? No, definitely not. That's why a computer on its own is, it couldn't do it. Mm. I mean, action is essential for humans. We have this image of people sitting in chairs and thinking about things like philosophers <laughs> and coming to answers. But all this is based on our childhood understanding of the world. So when I say I've grasped that idea and I'm going to pass it on to Tom, say, and then grasp is a physical word and the linguists will say that all of our language, even the abstract language we use, is grounded in physical events. So we talk about grasping things, getting it. Grounding. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. And you can't do that unless you can interact with the world. So to use as a sort of foil for exploring this, HAL 9000 in 2001 Space Odyssey had, well, arguably some ability to manipulate the world, but that only showed up in manipulating the systems of the spacecraft, which mostly didn't even move physically except for the pod. And yet Hal clearly had a deep understanding of the real world. Does that make Hal unrealistic? I think so, yes. I mean, Hal was a story, you know, it was not a real robot. <laughs> right. I think getting back to your early point, that's why you need a robot that has got something like a human anatomy. I mean, if you're a floor cleaning robot or something, then you're 
perception of the world is going to be totally different. Everything is going to be a few inches above the ground. That's all you're going to see. And if you can imagine in one of those being intelligent, it wouldn't be anything that we could talk to and make sense of. I've got a Roomba and I'm aware sometimes that it's not seeing the world the way I think it should, or I have to train myself to think the way it does and realize that it's vision is limited to non-existent and that if it explores a certain number of ways of getting from one room to another and they're all blocked, then it will give up on the other ones. We actually had the former CTO of iRobot on the show early on, Paolo Perjanian, who talked about simultaneous localization and mapping. So we got a sense of what that was about. And essentially that, I think, slam is pointing up one of the themes that you've been talking about here, Because that algorithm does not sound to me like humans experience and navigate the world. What do you think? No, it isn't. I don't think so. It doesn't have the play element, really, does it, for a start? Mm. If it was learning to do it itself, it would make little movements, uh, which wouldn't be very useful, and then it would explore other areas and it would gradually build it up and find the best ways around things. But it's programmed by engineers. Somebody's written the program and told it to do this three times and then that four times and random bits here and there. So it doesn't really compare. If I go back to my early days of computer programming and thinking about 3D systems, and so you had articulated limbs and at each articulation point you had a transform of coordinate systems. So every time you had a hinge, then you've got to do a rotation. And so you were cascading all of those back, which was quite computationally intensive at the time anyway. But to try and figure out at that point how to move something that had more than a couple of hinges in it to do something was just, well, it was beyond me. Now, if I think about, say, and I listeners can't see this, but I got a jar and it's got some things in it. And I think about how to take something out of that jar. I'm just visualizing my fingers grabbing that thing and taking it out. But there are at least six joints involved there with coordinate transforms. Mathematically, that's a horrendous problem to work backwards from getting the ball and pulling it out, which is probably why it's so hard for robots. In fact, I don't even know whether they can do that yet. And so that suggests to me that that problem of translating that goal into coordinate transformations is the wrong way to go about it, or is it just that that's easy calculation when you've got a big enough computer? Well, that's the sort of mechanical engineering approach where you solve the equations for the angles, but it's an inverse problem. So you've got more degrees of freedom than you actually need. So it's very difficult to solve that way. But I mean, that wouldn't help with the infant problem. Infants can't solve equations. But what they do, they spend time looking at their own hand. So this happens in like three months to six months. And they actually, they're locating the hand in space And the arm space is related to the visual space. So the workspace in front of them, if you like, becomes an area that they know very intimately. And they know lots of points in this area and can interpolate between points as well. So they don't need to solve the degrees of freedom problem. If they find a position that works, they record that and then they can use that again. Now, later on, they might find new ways of moving their joints to get to the same place but they can add those to their repertoire as they go along. But it's a matter of discovery rather than calculation. And would it be more productive for the development of robotics to figure out how to get a robot to do that? Well, that's what we are doing. That's what our developmental robot does. 
Oh, well, tell us. It actually looks at its hand and notices that. And after it's done that enough, then it can control its hand to reach to various places. And we've got various videos of this in experiments actually doing it. So it learns proprioception? That's right, yes. Well, it learns the calibration of its proprioceptive system against the visual system. And the visual system, of course, is not like a camera that we have in robots. The visual system is more like a searchlight that flicks around and looks at different things. The eyeballs are moving all the time Mm. and picking out centers of interest and then processing those. So the movement of the eyeballs is an active system. You know, it's action. You have to incorporate that into this sensory motor scheme of things. And learning to control the eyeballs happens very early on, probably in the first few weeks of birth. But you Mm. see them wobbling around early on. And... Tell us about the human visual system then. That also seems to operate in ways that are somewhat different from the object detection systems that we have going on in AI right now that I can see. We learn how to model a three-dimensional world around us, whereas AI systems are looking at a 2D image and working backwards. But this 3D-ness is innate to us to the extent that You can use optical illusions to fool the brain into thinking it's seeing something that it isn't by giving it something that it doesn't normally see in the 3D world. So are you reinventing the optical processing paradigm as well here? Well, our sort of methodology is always to try and follow what's known by the psychologists of infant development. So we try and model the eye, what neuroscience tells us about the structure of the eye and the concentrated middle area where we do most of the processing and the surrounding area which is used to detect movement signals or flashing lights and we reproduce that as a model of the sensor and then try and reproduce the attention mechanisms so that the eye is attracted to things in the way that the humans do and it's important to follow this I think because if you go off that path there's so many options you could go down all sorts of different paths but we know that human development is successful so try to follow that as much as possible regarding 3d though I mean the eye is basically a 2d system you can't see something behind the object at that point in front of you you see the nearest thing at that angle how 2d gets reconstructed into 3d objects That's just a computer science question. How are we going to represent this? How are we going to allow a model to build up? And so all the time we're looking at this data from development and saying, what algorithm could we use there? I don't mean implement an algorithm as such, but what would it need to support that? So our vision system at present looks at patches of colour. So it's these little patches. And if the patches move together, then this coincidence idea comes in and they're linked. There may be one object. And if various types of movement occur together, so you get rotations of an object and so on, then you can build up little structures that, Mm. proto-objects, that are the elements, the features that might be the main elements of an object. But there are lots of open questions there, and we haven't got very much further than that with vision. And there's an enormous amount of work to do here because every time you look at a new bit of data, there's new questions like that that say, how are we going to engineer this? How are we going to build it? But it's very interesting. That's the end of the first half of the interview. We've split this one up as well into two halves to make each half more digestible. There are more and more people arguing for what Melanie Mitchell and Andy Clark have called the 
embodiment hypothesis, quote, the premise that a machine cannot attain human-level intelligence without having some kind of body that interacts with the world, end quote. And here you've heard Mark inhabiting that space as well. There are a lot of people who think that we can get general intelligence through training big enough large language models. There are also a lot of people who, like Mark, think that we will only get there through embodied agents learning in the world. Is that good news or bad news? What do you think? Will we find a way of letting robots roam in the world and learn naturally? In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, obviously there's been a lot of news lately about AI being used to create art, but there was an item last year about a pair of scientists working on art and AI who used AI to analyze shadowy x-rays of overpainted art, where the artist had painted over a previous work to figure out what was underneath. Artists often did this in years gone by when they were short on canvases. They analyzed Picasso's 1902 work La Misereuse Accroupie, the crouching beggar. As a young artist in Barcelona, unable to afford new art supplies, he painted it over an existing work that they were able to tell was a landscape in Barcelona by Santiago Rusignol, the leader of the Catalan Modernisme movement. Then they used AI to create a color version of the art, so you can see what the painting would really have looked like, printed a hundred canvases, and linked them to an NFT on a blockchain. Maybe that'll help some of the artists whose feathers have been ruffled lately by AI feel a little bit better. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Mark Lee when we'll talk about crossovers between robotics and neuroscience, conversational robots, and what it might be like in a world where you could go down to your local park and meet a robot and have a conversation on a bench. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.